Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance podcast, the University of Alberta Tolkien Society book study for the winter term of 2016. Join us this semester as we read and discuss the Fellowship of the Ring. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter, we get a really good view from the Hobbit's perspective um, of Middle Earth as a whole, and then this 
the chapter we get sort of uh, the dark storyline and history. And uh, the other thing I really loved was how reading The Fellowship of the Ring makes me feel like I'm in high school and I still retain the magic behind the book. Mm-hmm. It makes me quite happy. Um, I'm Kristen, and I find it very interesting that basically all of Bilbo's closest friends are not hobbits. <coughs> the, the dwarves who come in and pass by, and he, he doesn't seem to, yeah, again, belong with the hobbits anymore. Yeah, totally. Um, my name is Brayden, and um, I don't think Bilbo's not my favorite hobbit. I, I don't know why, I just like, I don't like his chapters as much generally. My name's Polina, and I didn't do my homework. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm Jesse, and I think my favorite bit is when Bilbo's putting on his old traveling gear because he has this special reverence for it. I really quite like the the bit where he's taking out all his old travel stained gear. I'm Corinne. Uh, My favorite part is I really like how this chapter still continues with that sort of like whimsical. You know, sort of cute nature of the hobbits like we're not quite not quite so whimsical as the hobbit but we're still continuing with that also when you know Bubble does this I, I don't know you half as well as I would like how everyone has to stop them and I'd be like does this come out as a compliment for me <laughs> I think it's cute yeah. my name's Kendra I also didn't do my homework <laughs> um, I got three pages in this morning on the bus um, but this is my first experience with the fellowship even in those first three pages, like, just, there's so much in, like, even in just the prologue, just info on, these are the many different types of hobbits, so I'm actually now really jazzed up about the rest of it, so. Um, my name is Jess. Um, I really thought it was interesting and, and like the part about uh, Bilbo's pity towards Gollum mm-hmm. and how that affected, how that decision affected his turn with the ring, like the, just a sure that he took so little hurt from evil and escaped in the end because of, because he began his ownership with the ring with so with pity. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Sophia. I'm really sorry about the crunching. <laughs> but um, I... <laughs> what? Sorry. You can show everybody if you want. What she said. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, there I like everything in this chapter, but there are a couple things I noticed this time that I didn't notice before. <laughs> and those were, firstly, I'd totally forgotten the fact that, like, drunk hobbits get carted home safely in wheelbarrows by the gardeners. <laughs> like, that's amazing. <laughs> hobbits, like, this is, like, the safest place to go drinking. <laughs> anyway, and the other thing that I didn't really catch before was that uh, that really vain hobbit relative, she doesn't just get given a mirror, she gets given a convex, like, round mirror. Mm-hmm. So it's not even like, here's a mirror, because it's like, here's a mirror that's going to distort your facial features. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I'm Ariel, and this is the first time I've read The Fellowship of the Ring since I was in high school and the movies were coming out, so I couldn't help but contrast this with um, Fellowship of the Ring, the movie. And so it's interesting to see how they took different parts and kind of put them into different parts of the movie and um, the way that they sort of translated the book to the screen. Um, and I don't know, I would, I would like more information in the movie, but I also kind of see why they did it. Um, and it was uh, really nice to sort of 
a lot of how how fellowship kind of breaks you in from basically the hobbit back you know into the grander stuff that it wants to do because it's i mean the first chapter or has a lot of references to gale and bilbo's adventures and you know a lot of expected party basically being a play on an unexpected party uh, which is you know fun and like how, I mean, it is a bit slower, but you get a real good sense of kind of the inward sheltered nature of the hobbits just from like the conversations. I also noticed that it was between the two chapters, you get a real sense of kind of the progression of time because, I mean, and especially like the generation shift, because there's like 50 years at least, 30 years. Basically, <laughs> just everything. That's all we need, Jordan. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is an average. But you know, I mean, they make a. I almost they make a point of having um, the gaffer and uh, Sandyman talking in the bar, and then thirty years later, it's Sam and Miller's son <laughs> talking. You know, it's kind of you know, it's the same families talking. Well, the same you know, similar not quite similar arguments, but it's you know, the it's the it's. Hobbits, the next generation. <laughs> yeah, so I just thought it was kind of all right. You, you know, Bilbo, we're getting all of this kind of wrapped up from the Hobbit, and now you know, trying to move us along into the new stuff is kind of ah, that's an interesting way to phrase internet. I like how he uses the word tween, which has an entirely different usage in today's English. <laughs> Irresponsible tweens. Blue ears come of age yet?
woven through that first chapter where he, where he kind of like is this like gentlemanly hobbits and and their ridiculousness. And um, I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, and I think you're definitely hitting the nail on the head. Like that's been a comment that's been made about like the Shire in general by lots of people who have read it. So I think that's definitely true. Oh uh, yeah, kind of along with that and along with like the petty stuff. They are very are this way, Tooks are this yeah. way. Like Frodo's not a Baggins because he doesn't act Baggins-y. <laughs> yeah. And I think that comes kind of to the kind of like pettiness and like not like not really grudges that like Holly and Jess are talking about, but like, you know, it's like small town it's a small town kind of thing. When you know someone's family, you associate their traits with them and stuff like that. And I think that happens in Hobbiton. Um Nick and Jordan and then Well I was just kind of going on with Ariel and Ben. Uh, it's just like reading just like the very, very British, you know, it's just like this ultimate kind of, you know, British, like people living in like the countryside and everyone knows everyone at the bar and they go out for like beer and they smoke and it's just like, it seems like sort of like the ultimate kind of like British, like township kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's just like the feel of it. Yeah, totally. Uh, I kind of like the uh, charming way that they are kid friendly and kind of childish as well. The whole... They give other people uh, mm -hmm. presents on their birthdays, and everyone gets a present of once a week, basically. And, mm -hmm. You know, I, I also think, I mean, Tolkien just has a lot of fun with language in just amusing ways to kind of start off very kitty. I mean, you have, you know, 11 first in the first sentence, in the first paragraph. And even just, like, the list, the, whenever he does lists, in, the, in these chapters, whenever they're cleaning up the party or the firecrackers, which is generous distribution of squibs, crackers, backer wrappers, sparklers, torches, dwarf candles, elf fountains, mm -hmm. goblin barkers, and thunderclaps. It's like, <laughs> that is a very amusing sentence to read, and I just, I mean, it, it, it just, you know, it's kind of whimsical, childish, and I mean, even the, you know, all the family disputes are almost, you know, that's playground. You can almost see that as playground mentality. Just we all have our own little cliques together. So it's very even even though it's also kind of English, it's also super kid friendly in that sense and just great to be around. <laughs> some of those notes. It's interesting, there was something on one of the introductory parts on my copy, it was a quote from Tolkien about um, seeing that coming uh, right from the beginning. He says, like, he said something about it being obvious to see the uh, what happens to the Shire at the end of The Return of the King, and um, I thought it was interesting this time through to read uh, 
but that one photo says things like an invasion wasn't even good for the inhabitants and uh, to look ahead to that. Yeah, like maybe with how much they love their comforts and yeah. love to shut their eyes. So it's uh, yeah. Looking forward to what happens. Mm -hmm. um, more time. Do we have more time for Yeah. Um, one thing I I always enjoy about reading this is, especially now we've gone from film really into children who are into this, is you get a different style for almost like the different races. So it starts very like biblically with the Valar, and then goes it's still like a very high style for the elves. And then by the time men come into the story, it starts to be like an actual story. And now with Hobbit, <laughs> it's like it's pretty whimsical. <laughs> so I love the way he kind of transitions through the races and there. He, he writes a different style for each. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, like yeah, he definitely writes a different style for each of them too. But I think like when you're talking about like it kind of being a little bit childish and having that childish feel, I think that also comes from it being a sequel to the Hobbit, right? Yeah, so no, trying no, to yeah, yeah, that. I, yeah, exactly. By the time we're getting to the shadow of the past, it's a lot darker material coming yeah. in, and I don't think you get quite the same whimsy and just later parts of the book. But it's it's the transition because we're going from the Hobbit to something much bigger. So it's at least nice that we get this transition. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Helena, do you have something too? Um, no, just basically like, uh, well, <laughs> no, and then I proceed to talk. Um, but just like. <laughs> like Hobbit-like and, and, you know, very The Hobbit, I mean, in terms of the book, Child-like, whimsical, blah, 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 and then, of course, we go into Sirius Shadow of the Past. Yeah, you said something. Yeah, yeah, there was definitely, like, it's a nice tone shift between, yeah. between the first two chapters, which was kind of cool, I think. Sort of like, yeah, here's what The Hobbit was, now here's what we are, so. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and then, did Sophia, you have one? Yeah. I feel like a lot of that comes from the fact that the first chapter is kind of like an epilogue to Bilbo's story mm -hmm. and a prologue to Frodo's at the same time. Yeah. But, I don't know if it One thing that was really cool about like Hobbit's specific traits is that it introduces a lot of good traits that Hobbits have, and like we all can kind of see how those are going to become really relevant later, and how all their good traits are going to carry them through. But it's interesting how even Hobbit's like negative traits actually become advantages to them later in the book. Like for example, the pettiness. Mm -hmm. The pettiness is actually like a huge advantage when you look at like Hobbit ring bearers and their like fantasies and sort of, cause it's like, I don't, I don't know, it's like the worst a power fantasy for a Hobbit gets is like, I will dominate all of the other gardeners, look at me sort of thing. <laughs> so it's cool that you're looking at all these things that are negative about them, but you're also thinking about how that's actually gonna help them later. Really, really. We'll throw the best potatoes out of everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. are very like they they're they're kind of just smaller like you were saying they they their problems seem to be a little bit more like kept within the shire and just kind of pettiness toward my neighbors or stuff like that they don't really have the bigger problems that you see a lot of other people have in middle earth like you know the ring and <laughs> <laughs> all that sort of stuff um which is well if you were here for the last book study you'll know this is a theme but there's a theme in the lord of the rings that rick really loves to bring up um, and it's the theme of big versus small. So one thing that you guys didn't super mention, I know I see hands, but I'm gonna, I'll, I'll call on you to say, um, <laughs> that you guys didn't really mention was the fact that hobbits are extremely insular. So they don't, like, I mean, obviously there's stuff going on in the outside world, and you get a little bit of, they, they, they begin to hear rumors of what's going on, but they don't really care, right? Like, they're just, they're really wrapped up in their own little world, and it's, it's a smaller world than, like, the bigger world outside. And I guess, yeah, the theme that Rick likes to bring up is this theme of big versus small. So, like, hobbits are small 
small worldview, right? Their worldview is just the Shire, as opposed to all of Middle Earth and everything that's going on around there. And we see that different characters end up becoming bigger, in a sense. Like Bilbo, he leaves the Shire. He's now bigger than the regular Hobbit worldview. He now has a bigger, a bigger sense of the world and a bigger purpose, and it kind of changes his character as well. Um, so, yeah. Just something I was going to throw on with pettiness is that they, while they have some of these different like familial differences and um, talk about each other sometimes maybe a little negatively, it's, it's very rarely, if at all, malicious other than maybe the sacral baggage. It's, it's like it's almost like a behavioral thing. It's like you guys, you guys, you guys like boats. Who, who likes boats? That's crazy. It's not like.
sentence in like page two of the prologue or something like that that was really interesting because the prologue is written from a you know like a retrospective sort of like I am the narrator I'm living hundreds of years into the future from these hobbits sort of thing mm -hmm. but he makes a note on how um, hobbits have dwindled and how the hobbits of the time that he's writing about were physically taller than what hobbits are now and then you know also makes a quick note about how like two characters in this tale will be even taller than the tallest hobbit <laughs> that sort of thing, right? yeah. but yeah I thought that was interesting not only because like not not only because all races in middle earth dwindle but also because when you're reading the first chapter and the whole book the whole point of hobbits is that they seem smaller than everyone else around them yeah. but it's, so it's interesting to remember that at this time hobbits are also like bigger than they've ever than they ever will be afterward i guess yeah yeah and we all know how important being tall is right because like Gandalf and Turin. Uh, <laughs> the north would have known them little but for us fear would have destroyed them but when dark things come from the houseless hills to creep from sunless woods they fly from us what road would any dare to tread what safety would there be in quiet lands or in the homes of simple men at night if the dunedain were asleep we're all uh, well, we're all gone into the grave and let yet less and yet less thanks we have than you and then he just goes on to say um if simple folk are free from care and fear simple they will be so it's not that their insularness keeps them safe from the world, it's that they're protected from, from the world by others. Yeah, totally. Okay, and then I'm just gonna bring up like my favorite thing to bring up in this context. Because we're kind of talking about how like hobbits don't really have like big problems, like their pettiness is not really malicious, like they're just they kind of seem like they live in like a fairly idyllic world. But whenever <laughs> I always like to bring up the argument that remember that Frodo's an orphan? Like his parents died, they both drowned, which like I would say is kind of a big problem, right? Like, I, I feel like that's like, that's that's quite tragic of a thing to happen to a hobbit, and it definitely happens. And when I was reading this, like, this time through, 
drowned in the river, like what a terrible accident. But Ted Sandyman says, and I heard she pushed him in and he pulled her in after him. <laughs> Which like, I find is kind of crazy because like, you know, Ted Sandyman's like not really the greatest of guys. But like, clearly hobbits have like the idea of homicide, right? Like, I mean like, it, it, I don't think that that's what happened to Frodo's parents, but like Ted Sandyman is like, like brings it up. Like, so they, they have, it's not so unthinkable. Like hobbits, hobbits know about like really terrible and tragic things that happened. They're not like completely protected from all sadness and harm. I mean, I guess you can't ever be, but like, yeah, like they're not protected from all sadness and harm. But like, that's just like a small, that's like small potatoes to be honest. I mean, like, yeah, yeah there's, there, there's probably a kid in Gilead Gilead whose parents died in the river too, and they have to deal with the encroaching armies of Mordor. <laughs> 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 like it's just sort of like you know, consider the other. So I mean, I like, yeah, like your parents die pretty much sucks though anyway. Like, no, it sucks though anyway, anyway but if we're talking about baselines, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah like, it's true. Like, it's oh true. yeah, my entire family over in like Rohan, just like you know, their town is gone now. Like they just they were raided and now they're all dead. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah I guess yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Kara and then Sophia. Kind of going off the latest point too. Like, assuming I'm assuming it was an accident because it seems very yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I, like no other murders ever happened in Middle Earth until yeah. now. So that just seems really wrong. But also like. to Frodo's parents' death is also a marker of how little the hobbits actually have to deal with because going back to that kid in Osgiliath, that kid in Osgiliath probably knows 15 other kids with exactly the yeah. same story. Whereas in The Hobbit, or in The Shire, sorry, like Frodo's parents died, what, like 20 yeah, years ago and they're still talking yeah. about it. So it's kind of like the only bad thing that's and they're just like speculating about it and they don't even seem to feel like that much of a connection to it because it's become kind of part of community rumor if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if a random drowning isn't exciting enough, they had to pretend it was murder. <laughs> that's, that's true. Although I feel like that was just Ted Sandyman. <laughs> but, like, still, but if he said it, others probably have. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, Jeffy? Oh, I'm just going off that kid in Osgiliad. <laughs> <laughs> His parents drowned, and that's a tragic thing, and it's a bad thing. Nobody's gonna take him in, probably. Yeah. Well, Whereas Bilbo, he gets adopted by his eccentric uncle. Yeah, that's true. Super rich. Gets to be super rich. Yeah. <laughs> and even before that, he was living with his uh, well, hundred other grandfather with like a few hundred relatives. Yeah. So I feel like this yes. is probably the best thing that could have happened to Frodo. <laughs> Mystical thing where they're, they're like, what is this drowned in of which you speak? 
Yeah, and it's totally. super terrible and tragic, but it's it's also sort of comic that yeah. that they don't see a, like random acts of happenstance as a normal part of like everyday yeah. kind of tragedy. Yeah. Okay, Ariel and then Jesse, and then we're moving on. Okay. Um, <laughs> going off of grounded, um, I remember reading it, and um, I don't think I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it's the influence of Ted Sandman, but I get yeah. the the idea that hobbits who think, oh, people are drowned, what a tragedy, serves them right for carrying around this boat, which you shouldn't be doing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's this sort of, um, going off of what I was saying earlier about being insular, um, mm-hmm. and this sort of, oh no, it's, it's um, don't go looking for trouble and trouble won't come to you, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. like, if something bad happens to you, then obviously you were asking for it. So there's that sort of going, that, that, that sort of thinking going yeah, that's actually a quote from the Gaffer that I've underlined, so nice. <laughs> like, don't go get getting mixed up. Uh, don't go getting mixed up in the business of your betters, or you'll land in trouble too big for you. So yeah. that's exactly the mentality that you're describing. So there's this idea that nothing bad will ever happen as long as you don't go, you know, poking the dragon or whatever. Yeah. And so, like, the ring, you know, like, sort of defies that because yeah. it's like bad things happen anyways, and Frodo absolutely wasn't looking forward to that thing at all. But Shire a really creepy vibe, like nothing bad ever happened to Shire, stranger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of what I was pushing back on. I'm like, bad things can still happen in an insular community, but nothing yeah. bad ever happens here. But not like community. Yeah. <laughs> community. I don't think that's really what it's like. Okay. Um, okay, so yeah, so basically that's was really good. That's that's a really good picture of the Hobbit and tradition of the Hobbits and the Shire and everything. Um, so the next thing that we should probably talk about is Bilbo himself. And so like a couple of the questions I had written down here were what are Bilbo's characteristics? What characteristics are actually his and what are just ones that other hobbits give him? And how has Bilbo changed since the Hobbit? So basically just Bilbo. Any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, okay, someone has a thought on Bilbo. Um, <laughs> well it's it's just kind of interesting because you get like at the you know in the beginning of the Hobbit where he's not quite so prosy. Mm-hmm. As he would like to be, and then you get to you get into the fellowship where everyone's like, "Oh no, Bilbo's gonna read poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Bilbo's gonna allude to those absurd adventures that no one wants to hear about because yeah. they were outside." And Bilbo's already almost taking on this mythic proportion with, "Well, he's got a house full of tunnels of gold and jewels." And the gaffer's like, "No, guys, he came with like three or four sacks, maybe a couple chests. I don't think you can fit a, like ten tunnels worth of gold." In just this sort of like old codger but also like super <coughs> mythical in his own time. Yeah, totally. Okay, Dan and Helena then went. Um, he left the Shire, that being not a very characteristic thing of the Hobbit, and therefore I think he's shunned a little bit and seen as sort of an outcast by the other Hobbits, but at the same time, I think he sort of shuns the other Hobbits when he gets back. Like He mm-hmm. likes his comforts and he likes getting back to his home, but his peers, his former peers, hold nothing of interest for him anymore, and so he's changed in a way that he's, it's sort of a two-way street in, in the sense that they don't, um, they don't want to talk to him or have dealings with him, and he doesn't care to have dealings with them. Yeah, and I get that impression, especially from, like, the tricky place at his birthday, that he's kind of fostered. 
He's kind of like this impatient sort of guy, and he, he does his own thing, and he doesn't care what the other hobbits think. He don't need no hobbit. And he's so <laughs> he's so unique, and yeah, he totally does just like embrace the fact that people think he's a weirdo and everything like that. And I really like that about him. And there was this thing I was going to say, and I forgot, so we'll move on. If you think about it, you can do that. Yes, uh, Ben? Uh, well, he seems very generous and a little... <laughs> Sam letters, those are obviously evil letters, and he must never read. They really are rednecks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, Kara? Um, I was going to say this part, but I, I think that Bilbo actually is very petty because when he gives everyone who like gifts, I'm like, no kiss to the person who didn't return books. I'm like, the mirror to like the vein hobbits, so that's kind of petty. Um, but it's but awesome. actually, I was going to say, even though he shuns all the other hobbits and he's kind of insular himself, he's still a very nice hobbit. Like, he's still like the nicest. Like, we're all college. 
calling him Baggins, but really in the shower, he's like totally Took at this point. Like in the Hobbits, where they're like, yeah, the Tooks are super rich, but they're not really respectable. Like we accept them because they've got money. <laughs> and this is Bilbo. Like I feel like if Bilbo hadn't come back with all of this money with his adventures, like that he wouldn't be this like peculiar like Hobbit that everyone like accepts. But because he's rich and he's generous. super, super generous, mm-hmm. like all these presents and stuff that he's giving at his, at his uh, birthday party is like one example, then that's why they're like, yeah, you're super peculiar and super strange, but we're not going to like completely shut you out of Hobbit society, which mm-hmm. I feel like they would have done if he hadn't come back with at least moderate wealth. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah maybe. Just accepted that society. Um, yeah. So we skipped Tristan, sorry. I didn't hear that uh, the first time. It's actually the
when you encounter someone of like a higher race than you are, or, or race, or you know, like when when um, when people get elevated because they are like talking to other people, like when the Numenorians uh, associate with the elves who have seen the light, they now are more elevated than the rest of the men, right? So like I think that's kind of the same relationship that Bilbo has with Gandalf and with kind of the outside world. Once Bilbo has seen the outside world, he gets bigger and he now has a bigger perspective and he is now able to kind of see through the pettiness of hobbits and he has like, he's a little bit more broadened and a little bit more, I don't know, kind of like enlightened if you refer to like the light of the valor, like because he's now seeing he more people. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so Josh and then Nick. Um, I, I have two actually completely different things that I want to say. One of them is um, on, on Gandalf. I'm not sure if he was frowned on by association with Bilbo or if he eventually, oh, over the years, became blamed for Bilbo's disappearance. He was. Yeah. He, they just say something later on about a rumor that's like Gandalf's trying to make a plot to get Bag End or something like that. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah, they, they won as well. Yeah, so it's like <laughs> Basically, forced along on this adventure. Whereas in this book, uh, you 
get, you see there's a lot of lines about Bilbo longing to leave and longing for the, the world outside that he's seeing. And with, with the title, Long Expected Party, it's almost like, like it's been too long. Like he should have left a little bit like a while ago and now he's just waiting to like get back out there again. Um, yeah, okay. So I, we already kind of touched on the conversation between the Gaffer and Ted, Ted Sandingham, which I think just served as a really nice way to get adjusted into the Shire right away. You get like a really good picture of what hobbits are like. Um, then we have the party itself. Again, really fun to read. I didn't really have anything super exciting to say about the party itself until we get to Bilbo's departure. Um, so yeah, I guess like my final sort of question for this chapter before we move on to Shadow of the Past, unless other people have stuff to bring up. Um, um, I don't know if I worded this. And in, in my notes, I just kind of worded it as like, why did Bilbo leave? But I guess we kind of already answered that, right? Like, I don't know. He it, wanted to. Yeah, he wanted to. He, since, oh, I guess like kind of what I wanted to bring up about that is, it seems like for Bilbo at least, and perhaps for everyone, but not many hobbits have left the Shire, so we can't really generalize it. Um, once you've left your insular world, and once you've encountered the bigger world, you can't really forget that, right? Like, and for Bilbo especially, he seems to, ever since he got back from his journey, he always has now like a longing to leave and he can never really be content like the hobbits are content in the Shire um, because he knows kind of what's out there. He spent all of his time telling stories and drawing maps. Yeah. And well, he would leave occasionally too, right? Like he would he would go on vacation, he would get visitors from the outside. Yeah, Corinne, same care. Well, and you see that too when he's talking about Frodo and it's like, well, if, if I asked him, Frodo would come with me, but he's not ready yet. Like, yes. he's not ready to not be content with the Shire, sort yeah. of thing. Like, there, there seems to be, like, a, a point for certain topics that do get up and leave, that there's a point where you can't be content with the Shire anymore. Yeah. Since the age of 50. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he says, the, the line that Bilbo says is, but he, Frodo, is still in love with the Shire, with the woods and the fields and the little rivers, the awesome shops of the deer and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, Like, what is the Lord of the Rings about? 
Tolkien replied with, The Lord of the Rings is a story about death. Yeah. Which I think is kind of interesting. Um, so I kind of want to ask that question at our book studies for this semester because um, we haven't really gone through with that focus before. Um, but so that was what I was thinking about when I read these chapters. And I found that it was kind of cool to read it about because we know, obviously, when Bilbo leaves the Shire, he's not actually dead. Um, but it, like, I mean, it is kind of like the hobbit, the way Frodo reacts, the way the hobbits react, like the way the entire community reacts is like Bilbo's dead. So I think it gives us kind of a cool insight to the Shire's kind of perspective of that. Wow, that was that. Was <laughs> not dead, I don't think, but he's not going to come back, so I don't know when he will die. Yeah. And other hobbits maybe pick up on that, and if he isn't dead, he might as well be, because he's not ever going to be seen again. Yeah. So there's that kind of idea. Well, I think, yeah, I think for Frodo that's the case, but I think the other hobbits take it way more literally, because isn't there that part where, like, they expect his entire estate to be given away, and Frodo's like, hold up, yo, he's not dead, and also I'm the heir, like, what, what are you guys doing? Um, Well, and you know, sort of building on that is just see him disappear. So maybe like some of them believe like he's just disappeared, but like a lot of them believe he's dead. And what Frodo is doing is super morbid from that perspective. Like, I'm gonna hold a birthday party every year for my uncle. And they're like, yo, he's dead. And it's like, no, no. It's fine. It's 112th birthday. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mad Baggins so, too, as they say. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, like if you look at it through the perspective of death and like from the Hobbits, like Frodo's being extremely morbid for most of this interim period. Um, Toby? Um, I feel like a lot of the, like, a lot of the sadness that I don't know, I, I know I feel and probably lots of other people feel at certain parts of this chapter, like, it's a combination of seeing Frodo seem so, like, alive and happy with comparing Frodo to later, mm -hmm. and the fact that just everything, like, the entire mood of Bilbo's leaving is so reminiscent of, like, a peaceful death with a hopeful prospect of the afterlife in a way because mm -hmm. yeah. like even the fact that like all, all of his earthly business is tied up like Bilbo's the only character you can imagine actually just dropping the ring and going well that's that now I'm off like yeah. so simply like he's tied up all his loose ends and then when he sings like the song about the road going ever on and on and like pursuing it with eager feet it's very much that death is a journey metaphor, but for Bilbo, it's a positive journey because he's so weary of life already, like he talks about, so. Yeah, that's actually exactly what I was thinking too when I was reading this. I was like, wow, if you do kind of see this sort of Bilbo's departure as somewhat of a metaphor for death, I mean, obviously, Tolkien doesn't like allegories, so you can't just say that, but um, if you do like read it with that kind of idea, it does paint a really hopeful picture with, with the songs like The Road and with kind of just Bilbo's attitude um, okay, so we'll just go down the road here and then we'll move on. Um, well, I mean, I don't know how much this will make sense, but when, as somebody who has moved around a lot and who has left places permanently, there is this feeling of that there is like a death of a rela of relationship, mm -hmm. relationships and that kind of stuff. So if, 
and you may never see those people again. And it kind of feels like if you're only looking in at yourself and then at your own world, like how the hobbits often do, it's like they're never going to be a part of your life again. So it's almost like they do die in a way. Because mm -hmm. if you never see them again, as much as they're still alive out there somewhere, and if you're thinking of more than yourself and more than just your own little world, you know they are. But if you're like many of the hobbits are very much insular, mm -hmm. um, it's almost like, yeah, if, if they're not around, they're they're dead or they're not really there or they don't really affect anything mm -hmm. anymore, at least our lives. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah, no, that totally makes, makes sense. Um, Arya? Yeah, well, I mean, jumping off of what you're saying, but it's, it's this whole sort of metaphysical notion of, um, of part of itself dying, actually. Like, mm -hmm. um, I mean, you, you see Frodo, he's not ready to let that part of himself die. He, mm -hmm. um, he is like a good hobbit, a good baggage. Yes. Right? You get the sense that Bilbo has grown and changed, and that part of himself might as well be dead mm -hmm. because he's put it behind him. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, you know, it has ceased to exist except for his memory. Mm -hmm. And so he's able to sort of move forward mm -hmm. after that. Um, and Frodo is not yet able to because he's still that, like you said, like Frodo is still quite alive and he's mm -hmm. still quite alive in Hobbiton and the Shire. Um, and he's not ready to sort of let that part of himself go away yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, ben? Um, well, get, getting away from So I'm cutting everyone off um, because we're going to move on to Frodo himself. Um, so, I mean, we, we all agree that Frodo's obviously very like Bilbo because, you know, it's he's around Bilbo a lot, so he inherits a lot of those characteristics. He was taught by Bilbo, all those things. So specifically when we talk about Frodo, I'm uh, kind of interested in what, and how is Frodo different than Bilbo? Both Bilbo before The Hobbit and Bilbo now. How is Frodo different? Arya? Frodo has friends. <laughs> <laughs> Like Frodo doesn't like, or Bilbo doesn't like any visitors, so I guess you yeah. could definitely make the assumption that he's not 
unlike more kind of society conscious than Bilbo was. Like I feel he's had to play the straight man of the of the two mm-hmm. for quite a while. Like he, he at least knows how to do public real public relations, whereas Bilbo was just, oh I don't want to deal with people slip on a ring, go out for a walk, you know, everything's fine. And Frodo's like, oh I'll have to deal with the sexual baggages now. Okay, bring them in. <laughs> um, but it's uh, I also some influence of the movies, but I know I always have sometimes trouble remembering that Frodo is kind of middle-aged, <laughs> supposedly, in books. Though maybe, I mean, maybe you could also chalk, chalk it up to his um, perpetual youth, which, I mean, kind of abnormal, you know, trait that both he and Bilbo get because of the ring, pretty much. But, it, you know, it's kind of the whole dying thing, the whole So, so you can stick around with the young kids because he's still kind of in their group mm-hmm. all the time. He's, yeah. not, he's not quite grown up yet. Yeah. Um, okay, Sarah Lynn, Matt, and Jordan then. Well, I mentioned that like Mary and Pippin would have been explored part, but I don't think they necessarily would have. Like, Mary's a brandy bucket and ends up putting on clothes. That's mm-hmm. not where the Elmoans are, and Pippin's too. They're also like, interesting with Frodo, at least from the Hobbit's perspective, that he's almost, in some ways, like, eccentric without reason. Like, he's 
Um, I mean, he's Bilbo's nephew, but they're like, well, Bilbo's gone, and if Gandalf would just leave him, you know, he'd have Hobbit sense, but he hasn't, like, gone on adventures, even though he's been raised around this sort of strange environment of dwarves and elves and wizards. They're like, well, well, you're on your own in Bag End. Like, you should be a sensible Hobbit now. Why aren't you a sensible Hobbit yet? Yeah, and so that's why I picked up most, too. I mean, this point about Bilbo, or Frodo actually having friends, I totally didn't even think about, so, like, that was awesome. But when I was reading, and I was noticing the difference between Bilbo and Frodo, Frodo did seem to have this sense of, like, I don't know, wanderlust, even before he went away, right? Like, that, that was the difference that I picked up, was that Bilbo, before he encountered Gandalf, was just completely, I want to stay at home, I don't want to have any adventures, I don't want any of this, and then he had, like, a complete change of perspective when he went on his adventure. But Frodo doesn't seem to have that. Like, Frodo always seemed to have this, like, sense of wanting to know more about the world, wanting to leave, wanting to visit the elves. And it might be, like you guys said, because he grew up with Bilbo, so he had that, he already had a connection to that outside world, and maybe that's why he was able to sort of imagine it. Or maybe it's because of the ring that he, when he had the ring, he felt more like he needed to wander and needed to go far away. But yeah, but like for me, I found that in these chapters, Frodo seemed to always have more of a took side than Bilbo ever did before he went on the adventure. Um, yeah, Sophia, and then did you have a point on it? Okay, Sophia, and then I always think it's interesting how surprised I am reading the first chapter of The Fellowship, like, every single time, because, just by the fact that Frodo has friends, mm -hmm. because in the, um, in the movie, at least, he's portrayed as much more similar to Bilbo, so, mm -hmm. while Frodo's kind of, uh, you know, likes being his own person, sort mm -hmm. of thing, um, and then, like, Merry and Pippin are the two, who are, mm -hmm. like, the, you know, who do everything together, whereas in the book, it's, like, Frodo and Merry are more like in the same peer group and then do everything together and like Pippin's younger and he mm -hmm. comes along later mm -hmm. but it is also interesting in terms of the social classes of the Shire sort of thing how like Frodo Mary and Pippin are basically the young elite and yeah that's true actually very, like they're yeah. from the three most prominent and richest families and then but also the weirdest yeah, yeah also the weirdest <laughs> the Tooks were leaders for a while though right they kind yeah. of yeah, but they're also the, they're the crazy ones. They are the crazy ones, but the, the crazy elites. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, Sam is the normal one of the group. Yeah. Yeah, they are. No, that, that's exceptionally true. Um, Brian? Um, I just wanted to comment on the you were saying like Frodo kind of inevitably knew he was going to leave one day or kind of wanted to see the world. Um, I kind of like that commentary on like knowledge where, you know, the hobbits are kind of all implicitly ignorant. And then once you realize, you know, that there is a bigger world out there and it's not a happy place, or whatever, like, bad things can happen out there, but Frodo still has the desire to go, like, see that and, you know, figure out what it's really all about, even if it's going to be leaving the comfort of the Shire. Yeah. Um, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, yeah. So those are, yeah, that's all good. Good good talk about Frodo. Oh, do you have more things? Well, I guess, I guess one thing about the whole, what Bilbo was like before, I think Bilbo just, he was actively repressing his Duke side, and Frodo's now kind of grown up ever since he's been taken in, in, a, in a family where kind of that you don't have to, that hasn't been repressed, that it hasn't been, you know, you must be proper and everything, you know, he's lived with the crazy guys who he has learned to at least, if you want to be a bit crazy, go ahead, mm -hmm. it, it'll be fine, you can can have my birthday parties anytime you want. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So yeah, growing up with Bilbo definitely helped that. Um, okay, cool. So uh, we 
conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like my next point, bit of notes is like are like really disorganized because like the entirety of Shadow of the Past is just like a really nice like info. overview it's of a the range. Yeah, it's a yeah, huge info. Um, so I mean, the question I have is what do we learn about the ring? But like, there's so many things. But I guess my more of my question is like, so what what do we get about the sense of the power of the ring and what the ring is? Well, the fact like when they're talking about Smeagol and and the ring having agency not only in in causing like Smeagol and Deagle to fight to the death over it, but that it changes itself based on the capacities of the wearer. So you mm-hmm. you can't have a Hobbit Dark Lord because <laughs> the like Smeagol's greatest thing is like, oh, I need to find out the secrets of all my family <laughs> and neighbors and. And like take little petty things where he's not having this grand idea of he's going to become the ruler of all of the hobbits mm-hmm. and and take over the world with a giant hobbit army. Mm-hmm. It, it has like a really it has a really specific agency in that while still being an object. Yeah, and I think like with what you're saying, like what's interesting to me is it seems like the ring it needs like someone to wield it, right? Like so it doesn't have. It has its own power to twist people's minds, I guess, and, like, kind of make bend it to them to its will. But it says, like, Gandalf says on, like, page 81 of my book, it says, he says, like, no, don't give the ring to me. With that power, I should have power too great or t- terrible, and over me, the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. So it seems like it can't, it has to use the power of the person who's wielding it, right? So that's why, like, obviously there can't be a Hobbit Dark Lord, because, like, a Hobbit, even if all of his focus and will was turned towards, like, evil... Like how much focus and will and power does he really have to begin with? Like the ring can't can't give Gross. him more power than he already has. It could just turn it, you know. It just grows some mean potatoes. Poison the potatoes. <laughs> um, okay, so Jesse. Yeah, it seems interesting when Gandalf says that because it's like the ring gets more control over the the bigger stuff you want to do with it, mm-hmm. which is why it took so long. Same with Frodo, like he used it occasionally to slip away, which is why he stayed. He looked the same as he did, mm-hmm. and he retained himself mostly. Mm-hmm. Whereas Gandalf, he would be able to put more power and more focus into the ring, and the ring would then get more control over Gandalf. Yeah, but I think also, yeah. Okay, uh, continue. So Jesse, then what were you gonna say? Uh, well, I was gonna say, like, I think it comes back down to the conversation about like what it is that makes Hobbit so special is that there is, there, for, for a situation like this, there is a power in not having a lot of power. Mm-hmm. So um, if, since the Hobbits don't have the kind of power that wizards have, the ring is not capable of doing as much bad through them as it mm-hmm. could through a wizard or through, if, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, yeah, exactly. It doesn't have as much power. Sorry, I was looking at my notes. I Um, (laughs) Yeah, and also, on that note, I think I wrote down where it was here. Okay, anyway, um, on the note, though, I think part of the ring's power is also related to your intentions, too, not just the power, because there's that one line that I can't find right now, but where 
Frodo said, like, oh, I will keep it and I wish to guard it. And then Gandalf says, and that's the best thing that you can do with the ring is have that intention, right? So I think in addition to feeding off of the power of the wielder, it also can have more hold depending on how you want to use it, which we obviously see when we come to like Boromir and people like that. So it can have more hold on you if you wish to do more with it. Um, yeah, just, just, to, just to add on to that, that there's, there's, um, it also like how it comes into your possession and leaves it seems to be huge too, mm-hmm. along the same kind of lines. Like Gollum killed somebody for it and it just totally destroyed him. With Bilbo, he pitied Gollum and didn't kill Gollum for it and it had less effect. And then there's also, they make a, Gandalf makes a point, I don't remember where it is, um, about mentioning how important it is that Bilbo let it go willingly and says like, mm-hmm. it would have destroyed his mind if someone took it from him. Mm-hmm. But, so. Yeah, so with uh, Arya? Um, on that note, I, on reading it, I found it was very interesting when Frodo offers Gandalf the ring and Gandalf refuses and he says, no, I would use it out of, um, out of compassion and as a will to do good, mm-hmm. but then it would become more powerful, basically. And that, that's in the movie, but what the movie does not have is uh, Gandalf saying, I would use it out of compassion and pity. And which, which reminded me of earlier how he said, because Bilbo started his possession of the ring with pity, that's how it sort of, like, it, it didn't have that much power over him. And so I'm thinking, like, it works for the Hobbit, but it may not have worked for Gandalf for the reasons that we were discussing, because Gandalf is of such stature and has so much more power that the ring could feed off of that. I, I'm, I'm not really sure how to yeah. justify that. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. But I, and I also think that it's important because well, as soon as Gandalf says, I would use it for good and for out of compassion and pity, I think that's like the, the key word is he would use it, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas I think like guarding it and not wanting to use it is kind of what keeps it safe. But also, I, I think what you're saying is true as well with like, with Bilbo receiving it through pity being why it took so long to affect him. I think that's, that's definitely true. Yeah. Um, Nick? Um, like when we were going over the letters and also like whenever we were sort of discussing the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, but you know, like when Tolkien was writing Lord of the Rings as the sequel, he wanted things to sort of carry over from the Hobbits and connecting devices, and one of those was the ring. And with this chapter, you we instantly get a much, much darker tone mm-hmm. than anything in the Hobbits. And so like this isn't just, you know, the ring of Gyges, like this this magic ring that's that makes you invisible. That's not not just a neat thing. It's actually like pure evil that will like consume your soul if you use it mm-hmm. for, a, for a long period of time. So it's just neat how it, he instantly changes the tone in this chapter by saying, oh, no, like, you know, people have killed for this ring. This ring has destroyed people's lives. It's not just a neat thing that, you know, Bill will pick up on an adventure. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really a nice way to sort of tell us that this is going to be a far more sort of uh, a far different adventure than what we saw in the mm-hmm. Hobbit. Yeah. Okay. Also on that note, does anyone want to elaborate, um, Perhaps, like, just to elaborate for people who haven't maybe been at all of our other book studies, what, like, Tolkien's definition of evil is and what evil is in The Lord of the Rings. Anyone want to do it? Sophia? Tolkien really likes to portray evil as a twisted version of something good. True. That actually was what I was looking for, but that is true. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) I feel like a teacher now, though, because I'm like, hmm. No, but it's true. The, the, he likes to portray it as twist a version of good, which is, we can see that already with the ring, right? It twists those with good intentions to do evil. It's like um, an insta-villain machine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, I, I think 
Maybe this is what you're going with, the, the self-destructive nature of evil. This that is, is also good, but Otto's oh, going to elaborate. I'll elaborate. I'll elaborate. <laughs> more, <Alex. laughs> you can still elaborate, though. Well, just, I mean, we're, we like, and you can, you can see this through Gollum, you can see this through Isildur, is when people have the ring, and also with Gandalf's comment, you know, they're, they may be starting with good intentions, they may be starting with bad intentions, but like Nick said, it's a soul-consuming object, and the ring can only have, unless it's Sauron, the ring can only have a master for so long before, you know, he drives it mad or it wants to leave, and it, it needs a new master with greater power to eventually get back to Sauron, whom it can kind of permanently mm-hmm. reside as, as much as evil can be mm-hmm. permanent, but it's, it's always sort of destroying its host mm-hmm. in, a, in a way. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely so. self-destructive. I was going to answer uh, kind of dominance as in Tolkien it's kind of evil is the you know not enjoying things as they are but thinking that everything should be yours or come from you yeah. or and if it's not yours you either make it yours or destroy it yeah. it's, it's kind of it's the hoarding and the kind of mentality which is like you know dragons and you know Morgoth trying to be king of the world yeah. <laughs> stuff I think it's it's interesting to know that I, I, I think in Lord of the Rings I mean we haven't really got too much into a, I mean we got a lot of info about things but you know unlike I don't believe in the books the ring is you know Sauron's only property I actually do think you could get a Hobbit Dark Lord if you know Frodo got onto a, like a weight training regime and you know practice dominance you know you could maybe get there he might be limited by his Stacks, but you know it's not it's not just Sauron that can wield the ring in the books. In the movies, it's kind of different. It's kind of it only answers at best to Sauron. But I think in the books, you know, especially once we get to like Galadriel, you, you could basically yeah, someone else can take out Sauron. I don't care as long as the ring it has the most powerful person in the room. <laughs> basically, is, is okay. Could you imagine if Lobelia got her hand on the ring? <laughs> Well, I think that's a good point, and I think we, can, I think we will talk about that later, what other people can do with the ring, especially, if, like you said, when we get to Galadriel stuff. That's definitely but, something to keep in mind. But yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. differences in the books and movies is yeah, definitely totally. interesting. Um, okay, I'm just going to say what I was going to say, um, because like a true teacher, none of you guys answered exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, well, according to like our previous book studies, and Rick um, told me like the the sort of the prevailing definition, I would say, of evil. I mean, what you guys all said was true. It's self-destructive. Um, it comes from good. But like the prevailing definition for Tolkien is dominating the will of others, and you can clearly see that in this chapter with the ring. Not only with the story of Smeagol and with other ring bearers whose wills have been dominated. But um, Gandalf makes a point where he says, Sauron up until now didn't know about the hobbits, but now that he knows about them, he would much rather see them enslaved than free. And so I think that's that's coming back to this this view of evil, uh, that Tolkien has of evil, that evil is always the domination of others and like uh, overpowering others' wills and having only your will dominate. Although, of course, now that Rick's not here, we can feel free to branch out that direction. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like it, so yeah. Um, Jesse and Brayden. 
well not that uh, dominating the will of others, Gandalf says, try and destroy the ring. And Bilbo, he can't. Yeah. Like, and the ring has been with him for not even 20 years, and he's kept it on a piece of string in his pocket. Yeah, totally. Like, he, he hasn't used it. He just has it with him, and he can't even try and put it in a place where he could, you know, he could destroy it. says something about you, you would have to train your will to, to the dominance of others just to use the ring. Right. So, I mean, you need to have that, like, intent, really, to, grind. to use it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think, yeah, again, that comes to this nature of the ring in that it can't, the, the ring can't create things that aren't there, right? Like, it can't give you more powers than you have. It can't create an entirely different personality for you. You have to have something there that it can work with, which is, again, why Smeagol, he was already had that pettiness and already had that malicious nature that it was able to turn, whereas perhaps other ring bearers are a little bit easier to do. Okay, Sophia, and then And by the ring standards, the more influence you have over other people, the like farther you are on that path to it being easily able to make you dominate others. Mm -hmm. So it's like hobbits have pretty much no power over anybody else, whereas Gandalf has a lot of power over all of the people in Middle-earth, and he frequently meddles and like tries to set events up in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So the ring has a lot to work with with him. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because he, yeah, you're right. He already has that like tendency to micromanage. Yeah, Nick? Ben? 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 You're sitting right <laughs> next to each other. Uh, well, just something funny I just thought of. Uh, when Sam wants to make his like huge, huge garden, that's because he's used to dominating the plants. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. That's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> and do you think you could take over ants really well? Sam has to like kill the garden. I have another point that's kind of a totally different topic, so go okay. first. Well, I, I guess on the whole, like dominance and death, kind of as kind of big themes as you know, you know, dominance is a theme of evil. I noticed. The first thing basically written after the title in this book is not anything we have discussed yet, which is the poem, <laughs> the three rings for the elven kings under the sky, and of the, you know, two lines all about the one ring, you know, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, that's all the dominant stuff, mm -hmm. and, you know, what, nine for mortal men doomed to die, kind of, those two are probably two of the most prominent things in that poem, besides, mm -hmm. you know, Shadow. I just, I actually thought it, it was kind of interesting just that this poem is there because I don't know of many other writers that would put just a weird piece of poetry at the front <laughs> just to say. It happens a lot. Yeah. It does it? Yeah. It does, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's a very important poem. I actually thought I liked this poem because it was one of the easiest to understand. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, very literal. This is how very I write clear. poetry. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, back to Ben and then so uh, just completely 
read the other books, and just from this point here, uh, Sauron thought that the ring was destroyed, but then, like, in the movie, and I think in the book of Return of the King, when the ring is actually destroyed, Sauron is destroyed. So how does that work? Well, What's nobody's the, ever made a ring of this scale before. Well, maybe he doesn't know that he's, he's going to well, die. Well, I mean, he's, yeah. I mean he's, he, yeah. he's dissipated. He's not, you know. He's diminished. He's, he's diminished. He's gone. So I, I, I just found that curious. Right. Like, yeah. he, he, can't, like, he can't reform, but I mean, I guess he's never really had to be destroyed like that in the first, like, he's done it once. But still, like, yeah. even, like, so, in, in the movies, and I think in the books, but, like, the whole point is, like, they're going to destroy the ring to destroy Sauron, but Sauron doesn't realize that destroying the ring will destroy him. He's, he's not actually destroyed, because he is, like, immortal still. Maybe he's just like, okay. well, they destroyed the ring. Oh, okay. I'm a little bit. Wait, wait. We're talking about the end of the story. Yeah, let's go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah, let's, let's go ahead. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I, 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 I was just curious. <laughs> okay. Rick always asks, has anybody read the books? Not <laughs> read not this one. I know you haven't, but. She's never read I read The Hobbit. Ben, you see what you did? Okay, well, I've also seen all the movies, though. Okay. I know, I know the rough, I I know that they're very different worlds, but, like, the rough idea of the story is essentially the same, so it's, like, not really a spoiler. Okay, Okay, so Jesse, and then Ariel, and then Matt. Well, just going on, like, back on a little bit on track, I think, is the ring seems very much like a master chef. And... Is a master chef. Okay. And someone like Gandalf is this fully stocked five star kitchen. (laughs) And this master chef is able to do amazing things with this kitchen. (laughs) From the chef's point of view. Whereas the Hobbit, a Hobbit is like a university dorm. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a frying pan and a saucepan that someone's eating cereal out of. That doesn't take away that doesn't take away the knowledge or the power of the chef but it limits a lot of what the chef is able to create. So if he yeah. restocks so his kitchen properly, he yes. could become a dark lord. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. If you Such exercise your dominance world. over others, a.k.a. buying spent groceries, <laughs> 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 you can do more in your sh- like, shitty university sure, dorm kitchen. Okay, so... It'll learn Yeah, just on, on- 
on Sauron and, and the concept of destroying him, I also get that. That kind of comes out when the movies seem to really physicalize Sauron as like this object eye sitting at the top of the tower as opposed to like the vision Frodo gets sometimes. And like the eye kind of breaks when he throws the ring in the fire. And it's, it, it's he's not really quite, I don't know, I, I never thought of him when reading the books as opposed to watching the movies quite so like a physical eye object up there. Like it's funny how they say um, he's not yet able to take physical form. Like Sauron says it, Sauron says it in the movies. Oh yeah, but he's this physical eye. It's like sort of limits of filmmaking, I think. Sorry? Yeah. I'm going to cut off this discussion, though, because it's a little off topic. It should probably belong in Return of the King. Um, sorry, Nick. <laughs> so we're going to move on here. Um, so first of all, just want to make sure everyone is clear on how like the different rings were made, like the one ring and the three and the seven and the nine, or do I need to recap? Because I wasn't clear until I recap. looked it up on the wiki. Okay, so the recap is that um, basically... Um, Kilbrimbor, who was an elf back in ancient times, he was trained in the making of rings of power by Anatar, who is the giver of gifts, who is Sauron in disguise. Um, so Anatar taught him how to make rings, and under Anatar's supervision, Kilbrimbor made nine rings for men and seven rings for the dwarves. Um, and so, of course, because Sauron was influencing Kilbrimbor at the time, those rings were able to be used for Sauron's own gain to produce the ring race and the seven dwarves rings. However, um, Sauron made the one ring without Celebrimbor knowing and without anyone knowing, and it had control over all the rings, except that Celebrimbor made the three elven rings using what he had been taught by Sauron, but not under Sauron's influence. Which means that though the three elven rings have characteristics of the other rings of power because they were of the same make, they do not have the influence of Sauron upon them like the other rings. But then the one ring is like above everything, and that was made without Celebrimbor's knowledge. So that just is to clarify that because I didn't even have that clarified until I read the wiki yesterday. So he's just trying to hack the three rings. That's what he's trying to do. Yeah, he's basically patching the loophole of the three elven rings. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Sophie and Josh, do you have anything else? I have a question. Yeah? Um, I still like, okay, that was, that was really, really helpful actually <laughs> as to why like certain rings are influenced and certain ones aren't. And I guess yeah. the dwarf rings are just kind of out of the picture now. They don't really Yeah, they've all been like destroyed. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. But, um, I just have a question about like the nature of the elven rings and what they can do mm -hmm. because I realized until like last week I thought that the Silmarils got put onto the elven rings and I thought this for like six years until I realized it was really wrong and I'd read the Silmarillion really really wrong yeah. so I was just wondering like what, what what's up with the jewels on the elf rings and what do the elf rings do? Okay I'm going to actually save answers for that until we get to Lothorin because okay. we should discuss Smart. that when we <laughs> actually have the context for that, because yeah. that's a really good question and actually isn't as clear-cut as how the rings were made. Fair so that, that's definitely a topic of discussion. Okay. Good for bringing <laughs> we, it up. We need a carpeting lot board for when we come across these. Yeah, because <laughs> like, we could discuss the other rings now, but it would be way better to discuss it once we're actually mm -hmm. at Lothorian. Yeah. Um, okay, so Josh? You know, mm -hmm. I bet if Caleb Brimbor wasn't related to Fenor, he would have done better with the rings. Wow! I'm feeling <laughs> attacked right now. <laughs> favorite thing 
Um, so there's, uh, you should probably find it before I start talking about it. So when we're talking about Bilbo getting the ring from Gollum and Bilbo having the ring, let me just, let me just find the paragraph. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, I think I like underlined it. Okay, here it is. So um, we get up on our set, it's Bilbo having the ring is the most unlikely person imaginable to have the ring. And then he has this um, rant, it's on page 74 in this edition, I don't know in yours. But it says, he Gandalf says, behind that there was something else at work behind Bilbo picking up the ring, uh, beyond any design of the ring maker. I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the ring and not by its maker, in which case you were also meant to have it, and that may be an encouraging thought. So I think we should discuss that, and I think, I don't know if we need to discuss, but I'll save that until after. Okay, <laughs> Dan and Jesse? I think it would be wise to mention what we talked about. I think it was either during Children of Thorn or during the Silver Room. But, Probably both. But the analogy of, of weaving a tapestry. I don't know. How find the 
the influence of kind of Iluvatar is there's a there's a certain element of you can give it the shittiest possible ring bearer that it would never ever want. Yeah. So I just really like to think about how frustrated the ring would be because it spent like literally hundreds of years with Gollum and then it's like, oh goddammit, another hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like I feel like Bilbo is an even shittier hobbit than Gollum, because Gollum was at least spiteful to be well, <laughs> well, to the fact that it still needs a ring bearer mm -hmm. is I feel I mean it's debatable how much of this is like Iluvatar and how much of this is like Tolkien's view of the necessities of good versus evil because mm -hmm. I'm not good on theology <laughs> but um, I do think it's interesting that consistently throughout Tolkien's books like for good to exist you need a scapegoat or a sacrifice mm -hmm. so you need a ring bearer to like because we were talking about you know like does Iluvatar make bad things happen and in this case, you could argue that yes, bad things had to happen to Frodo for the greater good, or even bad things had to happen to the Dunedain for the greater good of the Shire, which is kind of weird, you know. Yeah, that, and that's a good point. Like, does, did, did it have to happen? It's kind of that free will versus fate argument. Like, did it have to happen that Frodo's parents died for him to have the ring? No, <laughs> like perhaps he would have still been like under Bilbo's care enough to receive the ring anyway, but
their involvement, particularly everyone sort of the whole story and the protection of the Shire coming from that. So you see really a silver lining kind of going on with the Rangers too, which I've always liked. And protecting the Shire contributed to getting their kingdom back. That is true, actually. It's such a scary thing. Okay, cool. Uh, Jesse, you have one more point? And then um, sort of just a random act. Like, just because the Rangers were brought up, how do the Rangers operate? Like, how do they that's, work that's as an organization? Later. At yeah, I think, I think it's explained more later as well. Maybe yeah. a Ranger, some might say. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So, um, yeah, book study's actually going to end in five minutes because I have a class after this, so I can't go straight to two. But just on a last point about this chapter um, that I think is really important to think about is another paragraph that Gandalf says that's pretty famous, I think it says in the movies, um, when Frodo's like, oh, uh, Bilbo should have killed Gollum, like that would have been so much better. And then uh, Gandalf says, many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment, for even the wise cannot see all ends. And then, like, I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies, but there is a chance of it, and he is bound up with the fate of the ring. Um, so it's this, um, and I, I, I kind of associated that with these questions that Frodo keeps asking, like, why did the ring come to me? Why was I chosen? Why, what did I do to deserve this, this kind of problem in my life? And so I think that's like an important thing to think about. It's like Dan was talking about, about the fate versus free will kind of argument. And like, yeah, again, how, how much can individuals like Bilbo and Frodo influence the story? How much of what happens to them is like had to happen to them and how much was their choices kind of deal? Just all important things to think about. And of course the idea of should Bilbo have killed Gollum So, um, yeah, any last points on that? Anyone want to add anything? Okay. Okay. I, okay, cool. Awesome. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, so. Rings and Rangers for coming up. Yeah. Rings and Rangers, okay. Um, so, we're reading two chapters every week for this entire book study, so it's really easy to remember. Um, so, next week is chapters three and four, and that's what we'll be discussing. Also remember to come here for games night on Friday at five. And also awesome contributions, everyone. I feel like this is gonna be a really rushed book study because Fellowship of the Ring is like a really huge